Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brendan will be teaching out of the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 3 this morning. We've come as far as chapter 3 in our study of Matthew, and uh, we'll continue on this morning through the, uh, the full chapter here today. If you would, let's go ahead and read together verses 1 through 12 to set the context for our study here this morning. In Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him, and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry." He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Let's pray. Father, we pause again here this morning, and Lord, we thank you for your word. We seek to give our attention now to it, and we ask, Lord, by your spirit, you would give us understanding. We might apply your word to our lives here this morning to leave different and transformed. And so, Lord, we thank you for it, we thank you for this time, and we do ask your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, at this point in Matthew chapter 3, from from this point to where we finished up in Matthew chapter 2, it's been roughly 30 years in the life of Jesus. Uh, And we now come to the point where Jesus is about to begin his public ministry. What has happened since Jesus settled in Nazareth? Well, not much is known. Only Luke's gospel provides a bit more detail, and, and even then, it's not much. The fact is, because of what we have in Scripture, this being the inerrant, infallible, inspired Word of God, though we would want to know more certainly about Jesus' life in those early years, uh, it's not what He has for us. He's given us what we need in His Word, and so those will be things that perhaps we can understand uh, in glory. All of the Gospels focus on events that the authors, inspired by the Spirit, deem relevant for the sake of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Matthew, as we know, is no different, uh, only sharing key things that contribute to the piecing together of this amazing puzzle, as it were, as he works to create an image for us of the story of Jesus Christ. And in particular, remember, he's writing primarily to a Jewish audience, and he's intending to convey some particular points. Now, as we make our way into chapter 3, we uh, encounter a man named John the Baptist. 
And again, we find ourselves really on the eve of Jesus' public ministry on this earth. And, and in this chapter, we are also confronted with much of the nature of both John and Jesus' ministry, which is really the call to repentance. Oftentimes, repentance is a word that is confused, misunderstood, even maybe creates somewhat of a negative connotation in someone's mind. But the fact is, this is the foundational element of the ministry of Jesus Christ. It begins with repentance. As we read again in verses 1 and 2, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent! for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is John, who was born to Zacharias and Elizabeth, uh, whose birth narrative somewhat parallels that of Jesus. It was not a miraculous birth, but you could argue in many respects it was, Elizabeth being very advanced in age. And, and so the birth of John, it was very welcomed, and it came at a significant time, near the time of Jesus' birth. Now, John the Baptist lives, as many of you know, a pretty interesting life. But he's beginning to see great success in his ministry. And as many are coming to him and listening to him uh, and to what he has to say, they're being baptized as a sign of repentance of their sins. Now, repentance, as I've mentioned already, is a word that I think many people may think they know really what it, what it means, but most fall short in their full understanding of it, or maybe they have understanding of it, but fall short in their application of it. Repentance comes from the Greek word metanoia, which means literally to change one's mind or to turn around. If I was heading in one direction, repentance would be doing a 180 and go in the opposite direction of that which I was headed. The fact is, repentance, within the context we'll consider here today, it's got to be more than simply, I'm sorry. And I think oftentimes we think of repentance in that way. It's saying we were wrong, saying we were sorry. But what's necessary when we think of repentance is, yes, I'm sorry, but also, I'll change. I will do it differently moving forward. I'm going to live my life differently. Now, people over time have struggled with repentance because it suggests that you've done something wrong, right? Not many people like to hear that they've done something wrong, that they've messed up. People don't really like to change either. When we find ourselves in a situation where we feel like we need to make change happen in our lives, uh, it, it's difficult for us. People resist that. But this is at the heart of, is at the foundation of Jesus' ministry, and the church, for that matter. It's at the foundation of the church. Consider this when we think about repentance. Repentance, as we see here, is the first word of John the Baptist's gospel, if you will, as we read it here in Matthew, in Matthew 3, in verses 1 and 2. This is what John is saying. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance is also the first word of Jesus' gospel, his message, his good news, as we'll see next week in Matthew chapter 4, in verse 17, as well as in Mark chapter 1. Jesus himself saying, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repentance is the first word in the ministry of the 12 disciples. We read that in Mark chapter 6 verse 12. It's the first real word that they use. It begins with repentance. Repentance is the first word in the instructions that Jesus gave to his disciples after his resurrection. In Luke 24, he, he gave them instruction for how to go out and minister, and, and within that was repentance. Repentance is the first word of the Christian, the first Christian sermon. Peter in Acts chapter 2 speaks of repentance. Repentance is the first word of Paul's ministry later in Acts. In Acts 26, Paul also says, repent. And so you see, Christianity is to be about a changed life. 
That's what repentance is about. And this is what John the Baptist was beginning to make a way for. Here at Calvary Chapel, we've long said our mission is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. It's the fulfillment of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19. The fact is, though, in order for us to really evaluate, are we fulfilling that mission? Are we accomplishing it? Well, then we need to evaluate whether those who have said they are disciples are actually making their way along this continuum, showing themselves to be a transformed life. That The way they were when they came to Christ is no longer the way they are today. That is our goal in Christian ministry is to see lives transformed. And again, this is what John the Baptist was beginning to set the stage for. As he says in verse 3, where Matthew writes, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now here Matthew's referencing Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And Matthew here says that John the Baptist is the one who was spoken of beforehand, who was to be a herald for King Jesus. Now a herald is one who would go before a king, go before his entourage, and announce to the people that in fact the king was coming. Now remember, Matthew is all about positioning Jesus as the king. He's making the argument that Jesus is the king. And here he says that John the Baptist is the one who's coming before Jesus and he's announcing his arrival. He's saying he's coming. The king is coming. Prepare for him. Prepare your lives for him. Make a way for him. He's preparing the path for Jesus to come on the scene here. And so this was John's ministry to ready people for the arrival of the king, the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Now this was the purpose of his baptizing people as well, as a way for them to recognize their need for a savior through confession of sin in their lives. This was different than the baptism we know as Christians today. It was a way for them to say, I'm a sinner and I need a savior, preparing their hearts for John to declare, here he is as he would, when he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now in verse 4 we read, Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now this is a unique description of this man, to say the least. Any of you ever seen a locust before? Would you want to eat it? Not usually, right? This wouldn't be the thing that we would think, oh, I'm going to make a diet out of this sort of thing. I mean, John, to say the least, was very unique. He was a weird guy. But this wasn't the first time that we've seen someone like this, at least in Scripture. In fact, in 2 Kings, in chapter 1, verse 8, we get a similar description. Uh, this man, in 2 Kings 1, 8, uh, was confronting the men of King Ahaziah as they were going to consult with Baalzebub over a matter of the king's health. And Ahaziah, when he asked his men of a description of the man that they encountered, they replied to him, it was a hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. Now Ahaziah knew exactly who this man was as he replied, it is Elijah the Tishbite. Ahaziah at this moment knew that he was busted. The prophet had come and had indicted his men on the thing that they were about to do. And so the people of the day they saw John the Baptist uh, in a strikingly similar way, not only in appearance, but also in practice to that of Elijah the prophet. And that was not by accident. In fact, in Malachi, in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, that's Malachi 4, 5 and 6, we read, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, 
lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Now you see in John the Baptist, we find at least a partial fulfillment of this very prophecy. And Jesus himself recognizes this, as he mentions later on in the Gospel of Matthew. It's in Matthew chapter 11 and verses 7 through 15 that we get an explanation of both of these verses that I've mentioned to you. And Jesus says, as they departed... Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the, violence take, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so... Uh, it's no wonder that this, this strange man, called and gifted by God, was beginning to really shake things up as he was preaching repentance to the Jew and Gentile alike. And Jesus himself declares here, this is the one that was spoken of. And so we see then in verses 5 and 6, then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, some of you here, maybe you've traveled to Israel, you've had the chance to put your feet in the Jordan River. Some in our body have even actually been baptized in the Jordan River. And what they would testify to is that uh, the water was not just simply sprinkled on their heads. No, they were immersed. They were dunked in the Jordan River. They went under. And, And this is the type of baptism that was happening here by John the Baptist. He was baptizing people into the water and and bringing them out. It was full immersion. Now this, though, was a baptism of confession and repentance. It was a recognition, as I mentioned earlier, of sinfulness. This is not yet a baptism that identifies someone with Christ like the baptism that we are familiar with or that you, Christian, uh, should have been baptized into. But it's a similar concept. We know in Romans, in chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, it says, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized in Christ, in Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we also should walk in newness of life. And and that is what we share with individuals as they're baptized, as they come up from the water, we, we encourage them, arise and walk in newness of life. They've been identified with Christ and, and with his death in this process of baptism. And so, uh, for, for John's baptism at this particular time, they weren't able to identify yet with Christ and his death and resurrection, As I mentioned earlier, it was simply about communicating, I am a sinner in need of a Savior, in order to prepare their hearts to receive Jesus, who would come. So, in preparation for the Messiah, the Jewish people especially were recognizing their sinfulness, their need for a Savior. And this was pretty incredible, because for Jewish people of the day, they were not typically participating in this process. To this point in time, baptism did exist, but it was really for Gentiles who wanted to convert to Judaism. 
But once a Jew, there was a belief that because of uh, your acts of righteousness, because of keeping the law, because of all these different things, which really boiled down to religion, you were okay. So to see now Jewish people saying, I, I need a savior. The things that I am doing, the things that I have committed myself to, these acts of legalism, and they aren't doing anything for me. And this is a message that rings true just as much today as it did at this particular time. And so as, as, as those who were being baptized, what, what we were seeing happening during this time is an early revival, if you will. And it was quite unique, the response that John was seeing at this particular time. It was catching the attention, especially of the religious leaders of the day. And why would that be? Well, because again, these Jews were recognizing that their religion, their adherence to law, their acts of self-righteousness, that it was doing nothing for them. And you then contrast that with the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and we can see what they thought about this. In, verses, uh, in verse 7 we read, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, as we see this here, and we see what John says to them, clearly John the Baptist could have stood to read Dale Carnegie's book, you know, How to Win Friends and Influence People, right? This isn't exactly the way you go about endearing yourself to someone by calling them brood of vipers. How dare you come out here? In many respects, in the church today, people look at this, and, and, and there is some debate over how we are to approach people and how we're to handle people. You know, this is much of what has sort of given rise to, I would say, the negative side of the seeker-friendly movement in our day and age, this debate over how do we be winsome towards people, how do we endear ourselves to people while still sharing truth. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be winsome in our approach, but like anything, we are to have balance. John was not going to shy away from telling these hypocritical religious leaders exactly what they needed to hear. And there are many today that could stand to hear a message that tells them, listen, you're not okay. Because as John then communicates to them in verses 8 and 9, he says, Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. What is it exactly that John is saying to them here? The New Living Translation gives us uh, this paraphrase, which I think helps us to understand it. In verse 8 and 9, again from the NLT, he says, prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. I'll read for you again verse 8. Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. John says to them, he says to these Pharisees and Sadducees, he says, your life doesn't match up. You say one thing, but you do another thing. Now, as this pertains to us, Christian, we, I would not suggest for a moment that we are to be perfect people. We, like Paul, will wrestle with our flesh. As Paul said, the, the thing I desire to do, I don't do. The thing I don't want to do, I do. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this bondage of death? And of course, then he declares, it's Christ Jesus who will deliver him. And, and so we recognize that we do struggle with our flesh. We wrestle with our desires and we seek to, to put to death the desires of the flesh. But that's the difference. If you find yourself in a place where you know 
that what you're doing is wrong, where you know the desire is wrong, but you recognize, I want to do something different about this. And so you surrender those things to Christ. That's different than those who pretend to be one thing and continue to indulge themselves in things that don't please the Lord. And so listen, please, whether it's, whether it's for you this morning, whether it's for someone you know who, who just needs to listen to this message, whether you're watching online or you listen later on, do you say that you are a Christian? Well, if so, we need to ask ourselves, what does our life look like? Our routines, our, our, our speech, our words, how we spend our time, how we treat people, even how we spend our money, the, the things we give ourselves to from a recreational perspective. Are these things different in your life? It's often been asked the question, is there enough evidence of Christ in your life to convict you of being a Christian if you were on trial? Or does your life look like the rest of the world? And what I found in many cases is somebody, because they wear a cross necklace or a, have a, a Christian t-shirt or a bumper sticker on their car or a cross tattoo on their body, that somehow that's it. We're good now. But the fact is, our lives are to be different. Our lives are to be changed, transformed. Now, depending on the answer to some of these questions, it may then lead you to realize that you have a false sense of security. Whether that's, oh, I grew up in the church, I prayed a prayer once when I went to this conference, I go to youth group regularly, my family's in ministry. I hear people say many of these things, and I, and I once said these things as well. I lived most of my teenage years, the Holy Spirit drawing me under repentance, yes, active in my life, revealing things to me. But coming to the place where as a freshman in college, I realized, and it was a big aha moment, I am not saved. I don't know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and I've said for years that I do. Because I had all of these things around me that I said, well, because I do this or because I do that. And when we come to that realization, we can begin to recognize these things in our lives, and then we can begin to relate to what John is saying to the Pharisees and the Sadducees when he says, prove by the way that you live that you actually believe in Jesus. John said, I don't care what your tradition says. You say our father's Abraham, who cares? Jesus can make more children out of these rocks if he wants to. And so in verse 10 we read, and even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John was saying, listen, he's ready to chop you guys down. In our human tendency, listen, we tend to swing the pendulum back and forth. And throughout history, we find ourselves saying, well, the gospel is simple. We go to this side where we go, oh, it's, it's just about repent and believe, and you're good. And then we go to the other side as people go, well, well, we need to see evidence in somebody's life, and then we can go all the way to the work side. And then people end up going down this path of trying to earn their salvation through different works and proving that because I do all these good things, I'm okay. It's about balance, as always. It's about both. And so, yes, we are to repent and to believe but then know that with that, our life should change. We should begin to look different. We should begin to act different. And praise God for the fact that, listen, He's not done with me yet. He's not done with you yet. Sanctification is sometimes a slow process because we, we get in the way of it. But I praise God that I'm not the man that I was while also recognizing and hoping in the fact that He's continuing to make me into the man that I'll be. There needs to be change. Your life is to bear fruit, and you do so by abiding in Him. And we need to understand that if our life does not bear fruit, if there is no reason to think that you're saved by the evidence or lack thereof in your life, then you ought to take that to heart. 
Jesus himself will come back to this very idea of cutting down trees in Matthew in chapter 7, verse 21, where Jesus himself says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. That was me. That was me saying, man, I have called on him. I have said that I believe in him, but it's because of all these things that I was doing. Not because I actually surrendered my life to him. Not because I actually repented and changed And so, friends, we must take this seriously. I mentioned earlier that many people do not fully understand the idea of repentance. Note what John says here in verse 11. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John recognizes here that in Jesus we have someone who is greater, and that includes the baptism that Christians will receive. For John, it was a symbolic act, recognizing one's sinfulness. And with Jesus, it will be similar, but along with it will come the power of the Holy Spirit upon the believer, as well as judgment of fire, both purifying in nature for the believer and and in judgment of unbelievers. But nevertheless, baptism is about repentance and salvation. It's foundational in both of these. And remember, repentance is about changing your mind. It's about going in a different direction than the one you were heading. And like John to the hypocritical, hypocritical leaders, excuse me, we need to prove by the way that we live. He said, I don't care about who you are or who your family is. And, and so when we think about baptism, what we need to truly understand, because oftentimes today we talk about baptism in terms of, well, this is an outward sign of an inward faith and you're doing it to tell everybody I believe in Jesus. And that's true. I agree with that statement. But f- when we are baptized, even though it is symbolic in nature, we need to recognize and understand and embrace the fact that it means we are ready to change our lives. We're ready to let him change our lives. And so baptism is also about renouncing your dependence on self. It's about renouncing your family heritage. It's about renouncing your religion or your legalism. Like the Jews of the day, it's about renouncing your ethnicity that you think makes you something and in turn ties you to this world. For the Jewish people, they thought they were something because they were God's chosen people because of their ethnicity. But what they were recognizing here is that does nothing for me. Baptism is about renouncing your personal righteousness. It's about renouncing your worldly success. It's about renouncing your political affiliation. It's about renouncing any adjective that you want to put in front of Christian to define yourself as a particular type of Christian or in a particular way. And the fact is, for all of us, even still today, we need to begin checking these things at the door. And I don't just mean the door when we walk in the church. I mean your bedroom door. When you start your day, you need to check those things there so that as you step out into the world, you can go with the right frame of mind knowing that as an ambassador of Christ, you are truly and accurately representing him with your life. It's like the Apostle Paul says in Galatians in chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's no longer I who live. You see, when we think about what John was trying to prepare people for as he was bringing people in that already thought that they were okay because of their ties and their religion and all these different things, he was helping them to see, no, you need a Savior. All of these things that you put your stock in and your faith in, it's nothing. 
And he, he was working to ready their hearts for Jesus. And the same is true for us. And so if your heart has been truly readied for Jesus and you can receive him authentically, but there's many people today who say, yeah, I've received Jesus, but they weren't ready to change their lives. Here are the three C's of baptism and repentance. Three C's of baptism and repentance. Confession, contrition, and conversion. When we talk about repentance, a baptism of repentance, but repentance in general, it must be those three things if we're truly going to understand repentance. Now, repentance is not just a, yep, that's bad, I probably shouldn't do that, sorry about that. No, repentance is first confession. I am a sinner. And you could replace sinner with whatever that thing is that you may be confessing, the thing in your life that you're struggling with, whatever the case may be, you fill in the blank. But it's about saying, yes, this is me, this is wrong. Contrition then is coming to a place where you're actually broken over it. Far too many people are willing to recognize that there's something in their life that they know isn't right, but the fact is they haven't gotten to a place where they're broken over it. They're still too comfortable with it. How do we get to a place where we're broken over it? Well, we need to spend time in his word and spend time in prayer, and that's consistently the solution for just about everything. Because when we spend time in his word, we begin to fill ourselves with his word, which is his standard, and we can continue to see just how far off we are from what he expects. That should then bring us to a place of brokenness, knowing that we grieve the very one who sent his son to die for us. Not so that we go to a place of guilty conscience, but so that we can understand. So then we become broken over it. And that's the process of true repentance. And then comes conversion. Yes, first and foremost to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But then on an ongoing basis, when we take that confession and that contrition and convert it into something different, right? Where we go, okay, I'm going to do this differently. I'm going to change. That's what true repentance is. And praise God that it's not about you and your efforts. It's about surrendering your life to Christ and saying, okay, Lord, you take it. You do it. Because he wants to do that work in us. That's what repentance is. And then those who don't repent, well, we see in verse 12, his winnowing fan is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. You see, he's speaking here of the process of a threshing floor where you would take the whole, whole uh, head, the whole grain of wheat, and uh, first it would be crushed, and it would be broken up, and then they would take all of, the, all of what was crushed there and throw it up into the air, and if a threshing floor was in a wind, windy area or if there was a tool that was used to create wind, when they threw it up in the air, the wind would blow away the chaff and the good grain would fall to the ground. They would take that and put it away because that's what they wanted to keep, and everything else would be swept up and burnt up. And it's those who don't repent, those who reject Jesus, who are going to get caught up in that judgment. Now, here's the place oftentimes in Scripture where people sort of begin to tune out. People get all bent out of shape about judgment and this idea of condemnation because, pardon the vernacular here, but they get a little butt hurt. And they go, oh, once again, just like, just like before with the idea of repentance, well, don't tell me I've done something wrong or in our culture today especially. I don't, I don't like to be made uncomfortable. Listen, and then sadly, again, this is where people turn their ears off. Say, see, I'm done with this whole thing. I'm done with this whole Christianity thing. It's all about judgment. Well, no, read on. Please, read on. Don't make a judgment about this only by reading a few verses because the wonderful thing that happens when we're confronted with our sin, when we're confronted with the the reality of judgment, is then all of a sudden, verses like verse 13 come along immediately after they've turned off their ears and it says, then Jesus came. That's what we need to understand this morning. 
Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? Can you imagine the predicament for John the Baptist at this moment as Jesus is coming, the one that he's intended to prepare the way for? He knows who he is. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus says, I want you to baptize me. He thinks, you've got to be kidding me right now. Yeah, I, I need to be baptized by you. This has to be incredibly uncomfortable. And then he's going to try and tell Jesus, no, I'm not going to do it. Jesus, no doubt, in his, in his infinite grace and mercy here, deals, deals well with John as he says, and he answers him in verse 15, permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. He essentially says to John, John, this is part of the plan. It's okay. And so John allows him. And in this moment here, as yes, we're, we're confronted with judgment, we're confronted with the, the idea of sin and of repentance, and then immediately, though, we're given Jesus, who comes, and in this moment, as he seeks to be baptized by John, not because he needed it, but because he wants to identify with humanity as he begins his public ministry. And you see, that's, that's where people need to get to when they struggle with this idea of condemnation and conviction and repentance and sin and all these things that make us uncomfortable is that immediately following that and the realization of who we are, we find that Jesus comes. He identifies himself with us. He humbles himself like we see in Philippians chapter 2. He esteems others as better than himself. Willingly comes, though his rightful place is at the right hand of God the Father. Though that is his rightful throne, he says, because I love them, I'm willing to go. And I'm willing to go and to die for them, to reconcile them to God. Or like other passages of scripture in Hebrews 4.15 that remind us that we don't serve a high priest who doesn't understand us. But no, he was in always tempted as we are yet without sin. And so he is a savior who knows us and understands us. Or in, in uh, Isaiah in chapter 53, that passage of Scripture, that wonderful passage of Scripture that deals with the suffering, suffering servant, but in verse 12 says, Therefore I would divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. You see, like Second Corinthians in chapter 5, verse 21 tells us, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made what? The righteousness of God. And so we've got to listen on. We can't turn off our ears because we don't like the level of discomfort that comes with realizing our own sin. But like these Jews who were going to John the Baptist out of their wilderness, they were willing to say, yes, I am a sinner and I need a Savior. And for us today, we get the glorious truth of your Savior has come and his name is Jesus and he's died for you. But then comes the question of, if you say you received him, are you allowing him to transform your life? Are you different today? And so in verse 16, through the end of the chapter, verse 16 and 17, it says, When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. See, in uh, Isaiah in Isaiah 61 and verse 1, we read, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. You see, that's good news. Yes, the reality of our own sin may bring us to a place where we're broken, but it's a good place to be. 
Because when we're in that place of brokenness, we can decide that we're going to do something about it. And the thing that we do is surrender our lives to Christ, the one who came for us, the one who the Spirit of the Lord descended upon so that he could proclaim good news, so that he could heal broken hearts, so that he could set captives free. That's what we have in Jesus. And so it's no longer condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because you're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And so what, what's being declared here is that the Messiah has come. John did his job in making a way for Jesus to come to the scene. Now, some ask, uh, did everybody that was there, did they see this happen? Could they hear the voice of the Lord? Could they see the, the Spirit descending upon Jesus? We don't know. I don't know if they could all see it at that point and whether it was Jesus who told others or if it was John the Baptist who could himself see it. The fact is, it's there for us. We know that what happened in this moment is this very thing. And so let's not be bent out of shape about judgment, but but rather let's repent, let's confess, let's have a contrite heart, a broken heart, and let's convert that into something. Let's believe on Him and, and live and be baptized as He was. And as we give our lives to Christ, let's allow Him to work in us and continue to bring about that work of sanctification in our lives that we could be a testimony to a lost and dying world that, yes, you knew who I once was. And I'm no longer that man or that woman. I'm different. I'm in the process of being transformed and changed. I'm going to invite the worship team up to close us out in a final song here. And I would just ask you this, is your life changed by him? And you've got an opportunity to respond to that today, not, not to me, but to the Lord as we close in song. And there's, there's different people, whether here in this room or watching online, those who will watch later on, those perhaps who have not given their life to Christ, who I pray today would be that day of salvation when they would say, okay, it's, I'm tired of running. I need to surrender my life to Christ. Maybe you're like me, though, and you thought, no, I've been, I'm, I'm saved. I grew up in the church. I, I've done all the right things. I've attended all the, all the right stuff. I go to all the right gatherings. I go to the meetings. I do all the different things that people tell me Christians are supposed to do. But you come to that place in your life where you realize, man, I've never given my life to Christ. If that's you today, surrender your life to him. Maybe you are in a spot where you say, yeah, I know Jesus. I know that I do. I have the assurance of my salvation, but there's a whole lot of me getting in the way right now. There's a whole lot of me in the way. And maybe in this last song, you just need to pray and and cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, will you just take this stuff from me? I'm sorry for getting in the way of the work that you want to do in my life. My life should look a whole lot more different than it does right now. And listen, this isn't a place of, this, this is not from a place of condemnation. Don't any one of you dare leave this place today going, ah, man, I just really stink at all this stuff. Condemnation is never from the Lord. Never. There's no reason for anybody in here to feel guilty. That's not what contrition is. Brokenness is not about feeling guilty. It's not about going, oh, I need to to punish myself. I need to, uh, that I'm not worthy. That I'm beyond the grace of God. No, it's none of that. That's what the enemy wants to tell you. Contrition is about coming to a place and saying, man, I am broken. I am sorry. Lord, I want to do this differently. And then recognizing that he has come. And that the Spirit Spirit of the Lord God is upon him to preach good tidings, to heal broken hearts, to set you free, to open the prison doors. You see, and so as you leave this place, if that's you and you recognize, man, there needs to be transformation in my life, then it's about saying, Lord, would you do that work in my life? Thank you, Lord, for forgiving me. Thank you, Lord, for cleansing me. Thank you, Lord, for doing the work. I give you my life, Lord. And so let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we close here now in song, I pray for each and every person here in this place, those watching online, Lord, myself included, Lord, that we would allow you to search our hearts. 
reveal anything in us, Lord, that's not of you. And help us to deal with it, Lord. To just surrender it to you, to give it over to you, Lord. And if there's certainly, if, if there's anyone, Lord, watching right now, listening in, that knows I need to give my life to Christ, well, then make today that day. Cry out to him and recognize, Lord Jesus, I know that you came and you died for me, for my sins, and that you rose again, giving me access to eternal life. And I believe in you. I invite you into my life, and I want to make you Lord of my life. I want you to sit on the throne of my heart. It's no longer me and my desires, Lord. It's about you. Lord, I repent of my sins. That is, I confess them to you, and in brokenness over them, not wanting anything to do with it anymore, Lord, I turn, I'm turning the other way. But Lord, help me with that. Lord, I pray for everyone here, Lord, that as they leave this place, that once again, we would leave encouraged and strengthened that you are doing this work, that you love us and you're there for us. Not leaving in a place of condemnation, but leaving rejoicing over the fact, Lord, that your spirit is at work in our lives, that you'll do this work of sanctification. That, Lord, you began a good work in us and you'll be faithful to complete it. And so, Father, we love you and we praise you. And we offer you our praises once more, Lord. Yes, in song, but also, I pray, through the offering of our lives, Lord. We deserve it all. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.